Thank you, Deacon Jinwei and uh, Elder Wah On for leading us in a time of uh, worship and singing. <clears throat> Allow me to uh, pray. Father, I ask that you will enable me to speak your word faithfully, with clarity, truthfully and powerfully to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, very happy Chinese New Year to everyone and uh, happy birthday to everyone too because yesterday was uh, Renru. Did you know that? I, I didn't know that. <clears throat> now, one of the reasons why I like Chinese New Year is because it gives me second chance. And I'm sure everybody likes second chances, right? But second chance in what? Well, second chance in if I fail in my commitment to my New Year resolution on 1st January, Chinese New Year is, okay, start all over again. And so, can you believe it? The first month of the year is almost over already. It was really fast for me. I don't know about you. And so, how was it for you? Was it good or not so good? However it may be, I still think it is good and timely for all of us to take this opportunity of the new year to evaluate and measure our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the worst things that we can do is assume we are doing okay when we are not. And when we finally realize our true condition of self, it might be too late then to do something. I learned this, unfortunately, from my late father and, his, and my relatives. How? Because they had certain symptoms and condition that showed that there were some health uh, issues, but they refused to uh, investigate and look upon it and they ignored it, ignored it, and until it became too late, um, it, it took their lives. So for me, <clears throat> already at the start of the year, I'm really planning to take my yearly health screening. And I may look a bit young, but actually I'm not. Uh, at 45 years old, uh, I realized that I have to take my health more seriously and cannot be so uh, take for granted as I was in my younger days. And I can't imagine I have to start thinking like that. I never think of my health in this way. And this year, I, decide that, I decided that I want to focus more on uh, cancer uh, issues. Hopefully, my examination will, hopefully will not detect anything, but hopefully that I can have a good uh, bill of health. Because I want to not get into the problem of taking my health for granted, or it was ignoring things that may show that something is wrong. And that's why I think today's passage is timely and important, for it is calling out to us to assess our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the main point of my message today is this. Brothers and sisters, knowing is not the same as following. Therefore, be certain that you are following Jesus. I repeat again. Knowing is not the same as following. Therefore, be certain that you are following Jesus. The passage that we have lays out quite easily for us two things to teach us, the difference between knowing and following Jesus. John the Baptist's testimony is introduced to us in verse 19. He will 
tell about two groups of people, two groups of people. One is the religious leaders and the other, the ordinary men. And what is so different is that how they responded differently, so radically different. And the question is, why? Why is it there are two different responses, especially especially when it is most reasonable for the religious leaders to respond better, far better, if not at least the same as the other men. And so that's why I believe and convinced that the passage that we have of John chapter 1, verse 19 to 51 is dealing with a danger that still exists today. A.W. Tozer was a pastor in Chicago uh, until 1950s recognized this problem that plagued his generation. And I believe that it still plagued our generation today. So allow me to read what he has shared. And I quote, There is today no lack of Bible teachers to set forth correctly the principles of the doctrines of Christ. But too many of these seem satisfied to teach the fundamentals of faith year after year strangely unaware that there is in their ministry no manifest presence, nor anything unusual in their personal lives. They minister constantly to believers who feel within their breasts a longing which, which their teaching simply does not satisfy. The truth of Wesley words established before our eyes, orthodoxy or right opinion, is at best a very slender part of religion. There may be a right opinion of God without either love or right temper without toward Him. Satan is proof of this. Thanks to our splendid Bible societies and to other effective agencies for the dissemination of the Word, there are today many millions of people who hold right opinions probably more than ever before in the history of the church. Sound Bible exposition is an imperative must in the church of the living God. Without it, no church can be a New Testament church in any strict meaning of the terms. But exposition may be carried on in such a way as to leave the hearers, which is you, devoid of any true spiritual nourishment whatever. For it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless, and unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. Close quote. Do you agree with Tozer? Do you sense this disconnection that you have in your own walk with Christ? And in reality, do you have this void in you? How is it that the Bible promises life, power, light, living waters for those who believe in Jesus, and yet we feel none of it, but only emptiness, dryness, and the echo of our own voice? Supposedly, we are walking with God. And I believe this passage of John chapter 1 is the answer to the issue at hand. 
And so the first point, the first main point is having knowledge does not mean you have a relationship. Having knowledge does not mean you have a relationship. Now, I would like to make a clarification because I'm not trying to artificially separate and falsely pit knowledge and relationship against each other as opposites. Because I'm well aware that you need to have a knowledge of someone in order to have relationship with the person. It does not make sense if you don't have knowledge to have relationship with the person. But I do want to highlight that it is possible to either substitute or wrongly think that just because I know someone, it means I may have a relationship with that person. I guess our digital media, social media has given that kind of false connection that we may have a relationship with the people that we follow, that we admire, idols that we look up to, that we have a kind of a relationship, but we actually do not have any. And I also believe because of our connections and information overload, we have somehow been more desensitized and knowledge and relationship have become more muddied because we no longer need to have a relationship with someone personal, personally to get to know that person. All I need to do is hook up to you as a, good, as a friend on Facebook, read up your profile, see where you are going around and eating and so forth. Then I have some form of knowledge that previously, before these things, technology wouldn't have been available. So look at John chapter 1, verse 19 and verse 24 to 25. What we have is a description of the first group of people who whom John the Baptist witnessed to. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And then verse 24, Now they, have been, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So the first group of people were religious people, and they were the ones who approached John. Description of them being Levites, priests, and Pharisees would only lead us to conclude that they actually come, they came from a council called the Sanhedrin Council. This was the highest legislative body of the Jews, and they kind of formed as a supreme court or an even a political council all meshed into one. And daily they would deal and discuss the civil affairs of the population and especially also the religious affairs. Now, John the Baptist had been making such a significant impact among the masses and the crowds that the religious leaders in Jerusalem felt that this warranted investigation. And so they sent a representative to go down to find out. Now, in this discourse and narrative, we can find out, we can kind of uh, discover three things about the religious leaders, which I want to highlight to you. One, we will discover that the religious leaders are knowledgeable. The second thing is that we will discover that the religious leaders serve God in the temple. And the last one is that the religious leaders ask good questions. From the passage, we know that they, that they understand and knew scriptures very well because they were able to ask John, based on his activities and the things that he was saying, whether he was Elijah or the Christ, or the prophet. 
The ability to do that to us shows that they understood the background and the story of these significant figures. And they understood that God in His Word had prophesied and promised that one day He will send a figure like Elijah or Moses the prophet called the Christ to do something significant. So they were able to make some form of connection, plausible connection. And they knew it would be significant if indeed John the Baptist was one of them. Now, even a, without this information, a quick brief uh, study of their background will tell you that these religious leaders were very um, uh, astute students to God's word. From young, they had been raised to memorize, to read the Torah. And they would knew, know these truths and the law of God by heart. And every day, they would discuss these matters. And for what reason? because they needed to teach the masses what it means to conduct themselves as Jews, how to preserve their purity, and how to conduct and give their offerings and rituals in the temple itself. So it is without a doubt, no dispute, that those who knew the scriptures and the law of God best among all would be these religious leaders. The second thing is that these leaders were also identified as priests and Levites, which would automatically help us to associate them with the temple work. So not only do they teach the law of God, the Torah, they would also be serving God in temples, offering prayers, sacrifices, and supervising and performing rituals like cleansing rituals. Interestingly, one of the reasons that might have drawn them towards John the Baptist was because he was baptizing people. Scholarly research actually has revealed something interesting. Before John was baptizing um, the Jews, the, the, the practice of baptism was actually in present. It was current. It was actually being done in the first century itself. The art of the, the work of baptizing was a form of ritual cleansing. Specifically, it was applied to Gentiles. So whenever a Gentile would want to become a, follow the Jewish faith to become a proselyte Jew, the Gentile will be baptized. And the difference is the Gentile will baptize himself almost in the form of cleansing. Some have actually alluded to a story in the past of Naaman, a commander in the Syrian army, how he went to the Jordan River and cleansed himself seven times to be clean and then he became whole. So this was a practice, an initiation for Gentiles who wanted to follow the Jewish faith. But the difference about John the Baptist was this. First, he was doing the baptism, not the people themselves. Secondly, he was not baptizing Gentiles. He was baptizing Jews. And thirdly, he was baptizing them not to cleansing, but upon repentance of sin. So these things drew the religious leaders because they wanted to know how come you are doing such a ritual that we normally practice in the temple or elsewhere that is over-supervised by the religious leaders, but this time it is done by you differently. And the last thing is, these religious leaders ask very good questions indeed because by the questions that they raise, they ask, are you the Christ? Are you the Elijah? Are you the prophet? They know they were mentioning Deuteronomy 18. And then they asked, why are you baptizing if you are not Christ, the Elijah, or the prophet? Because they understood the possible significance of John's activities. You see, John could very well be the fulfillment 
of these three, either of these three important characters that God had promised. He could be the Christ, he could be the Elijah, he could be the Moses. And that's why these religious leaders want to know, because if it's true, the impact would be tremendous. And as religious leaders, they would definitely want to be part of God's work or plan of delivering and saving His people from oppression and suffering. So definitely, the religious leaders have great interest in wanting to know this about John. But John, despite their interest, told them that, no, he is not the Christ. He is not the Elijah that has promised or the prophet uh, that was promised by Moses. In fact, John says something unexpectedly. He says that I'm actually not that kind of person that you think I am. I'm not so significant. I'm just a voice. My calling, my role is to be the voice and to be the one to point to the one who is the actual Christ, the one who is the greater Elijah, the one who is the greater Moses. And so John describes himself as totally insignificant as compared to the Christ, inconsequential and unimportant. So the question is, if John had presented himself that way, that he's not who he, whom the religious leaders might have thought he might be, but rather he was the one to point the actual person that they thought that they were anticipating, wouldn't it be logical and even rational that they would want to find out who this person who this Christ that John is pointing towards? For all the questions that they asked, they did not ask the most important question of all. Who is this person, John, that you are speaking of? We want to know him. The silence of these questions after a series of good questions is so deafening in the text. So yet, despite showing such potential as religious leaders, people who know all and ought to know, they fail in their responses. They were so close and yet so far away. The question we have to ask ourselves now is, why? Why of all people the religious leaders fail in their response? And I think the clue to the question is found in verse 26. Look at verse 26. <clears throat> the John, the author, writes, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And that's the clue. You do not know is the key. You see, John is telling them that for all the knowledge and understanding that they possess and train as religious leaders, they still would not know the Christ. They need someone like John to show them who the Christ is, who this person is. And that is why the later part in verse 20, sorry, it's too small for me, 29 to 34 is where John was going to understand who this person is and be able to point. But the trouble with the religious leaders is this, is that they think they know. They think that they have the knowledge and the self-ability to know Christ. And I am convinced that it is because of this assumption 
and self-confidence of their own knowledge of the Christ, and even in some ways the reduction that to know Christ is just a possession of knowledge or content, has caused them to fall into the danger and blinded their eyes. Because the truth is, my brothers and sisters, to know Christ both personally and intimately is more than just possessing knowledge. It requires relationship. When I was doing my theological studies, I was very excited and awed at the same time by the sudden access and exposure to biblical and theological knowledge that I never had before. My classmates were all speaking in such jargons that I had no idea what they were talking. And so to look like I was still quite, you know, I knew what was going on, I just kept my mouth shut. And yet, that did not discourage me from wanting to know more. I knew terms and terminologies and history and names that, sorry to say, I've forgotten quite a bit. But nevertheless, I was very excited in learning many of them. I even had access to learning the original language, Greek and Hebrew, which was wonderful, but uh, very difficult, very tough. Uh, helped, helped me to appreciate Chinese a lot more. I like what my systematic theology uh, professor, Dr. Feinberg, uh, said regarding uh, understanding and knowing Greek and Hebrew and not knowing. He said it is like watching television. Now, for the younger ones, do you know what's a television? I don't think you know. So let me explain what is it. It is this uh, square, not square, <laughs> rectangle thing with a screen that shows you images. You might have seen this once in a while. No? Okay, never mind, right? Okay. So last, so what he's saying that if you know the original language, it's like watching the, sh the show in color. But if you don't know the original language, it's like watching the show in black and white. And yes, kids, there was once that your parents watched a show in black and white. Not because the people were black and white, it's just that there was no color. So you get to understand the show, enjoy the show, know the conversation, but you just miss out some of the details like the color of the clothes, the color of the uh, sky, and so and so forth. I was very excited, and, I, and I, that kind of also uh, drove me and encouraged me to study hard. But as I was studying, I soon discovered that it was easier to form a relationship with a theological book uh, than to have a relationship with someone. Do you get that? Did you discover that? Well, if you have not, I'm telling you that. Why? Because in, with a book, when I form a relationship with a book, there is no conflict, no disagreement, no arguments, nobody to challenge me and to correct me. And you don't see anybody talking to a book, you are stupid, you know, why you say this about me? No, you don't say that at all. Anytime you are not happy with the book, close and maybe move to the next page or go to another book itself. I realized that when I was reading a book about God, I didn't have to change. I didn't have to repent of my sins and don't need to look towards transformation of becoming more Christ-like and still be absolutely happy and contented being the same person because I discovered that, I learned early that knowledge alone cannot substitute of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it, this, it is this fatal mistake that caused the religious leaders to fail and fall. And I think this is too important for us to ignore 
lest we think that it is improbable and maybe even remote that you think it will not happen to us, turn to Matthew chapter 7. I encourage you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, this is what Jesus says. Not of the religious leaders in his days, but of the future in the last days, which is our days. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did you hear that? Can you see the similar issues in that passage in Matthew 7? These people say that they know the Lord. They have so-called knowledge of the Lord. They even use His name. And they were actively serving the Lord, doing things in His name. And yet, notwithstanding about the knowledge that they supposedly possess and the service that they have discharged in the name of God, in God's evaluation, there is no relationship. There is no relationship in existence. The final verdict in what Jesus says about them is most important. Jesus says, I never knew you. How is this possible? You see, we can end up in the danger of convincing ourselves and even others around us that we know the Lord, that we serve the Lord, but it does not equate that we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not have a relationship with Christ. And that's something that frightens me. And I ask myself, do I have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? So therefore, we have to be honest and we have to ask ourselves, have we fallen into the danger of assuming that having knowledge of Jesus is the same as having a relationship with Him? Have we reduced this relationship with Jesus as just mere possession of content? And if yes, then now is the time to confess and repent. Now. Not later. Not after the service. Not tomorrow. Now. And to cry out to the Lord with our hearts and with our minds that we desperately need Him. This could also very well explain why our lives feel so powerless, with no direction, so defeated, so dry and dead. Why? Because maybe we never had, or somehow along the line, we stopped walking with Christ. And so that has started that descent, or some may say the backslide. But wonderfully, it doesn't have to end here. Here, John is helping us to see that there is an alternative. So what does it mean, or what does it look like to have a relationship with Jesus? And this leads to the second point. To have a relationship with Jesus means to follow Him. To have a relationship with Jesus means to follow him. The second group of people that John bore witness that he gave his testimony to were ordinary people like you and me. And yet, this group of ordinary people responded so differently 
from the religious leaders. And John, the author, is helping us to see the difference and helping us, the readers, to learn this important lesson and truth. The verb follow occurs about 19 times in the Gospel of John. And yet, interestingly, it is used most often in the first chapter, four times, and in the last chapter, three times. And there is significance in that. John, the author, is making an important point with this verb. Look at verse 37. Look what John writes. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed him. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Verse 40, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And the last one, verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. You know, the words follow, the verb itself, not only describes the behavior of the first disciples, but also Jesus' command towards Philip. Here, John the author is showing the difference between the religious leaders and these men. It is without a doubt that the disciples had some knowledge of the scriptures itself, for they were able to identify and make the connection that Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. But the key is, they did not stop at just at that knowledge. They went a step beyond. They wanted to know what it means to have a relationship with Him. And so, they did something. And so, there are four things that we can learn from this interaction and relationship, or this interaction and narrative between Jesus and His disciples. The first one is in an invitation. The second one is a calling. Third, a command. And fourth, a revelation. An invitation. <clears throat> when John, as he was showing his disciples who Jesus was, saying, Behold the Lamb, the two disciples, what did they do? They didn't just stop by and, and just left as it is. They went and followed after Jesus. And I always imagine this uh, uh, scene in a very uh, uh, comical way, in a sense. Even though these were adult men, you know, they were yet so fearfully and gingerly following Jesus from a distance, hoping that, you know, he would not spot them. And just as when Jesus is going to turn his head, you know, they were hiding behind baskets or behind crowd, but they were trying to follow him. And finally, Jesus caught their eye and they caught Jesus' eye. And then Jesus said something so wonderful. What are you seeking? He knows why they are there. And in the most amazing, wonderful response, they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus says here, the invitation, come and you will see. You see, a relationship with Jesus begins with an invitation. Not your invitation, His invitation. Jesus is inviting every one of us here to begin a relationship with Him. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to show credentials. You don't have to be worried about your past. Whatever it might be, all you need to do is to accept the invitation. Come and see. That's it. 
That's how you begin a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, accepting his invitation itself. The next thing is a calling. In verse 42, as Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus, straight away Jesus said, looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Not only are we entering a relationship with Jesus, but in entering with a relationship with Jesus, we will begin a journey of self-discovery and fulfillment of our lives, of why we, were, why we are here, why we are called. You see, when Jesus saw Simon and named him Peter, it was not only to make a personal connection to him, but it was to show to Peter this is your potential, Peter, and this is your calling. Jesus doesn't just look at us at the present moment. He sees us of our future, of what we can and will become. And so, why? Because only Jesus can do this work of transformation and empowerment to make us to become the person that we are, to fulfill our calling and purpose in life and potential. Every other way will not lead to that. Why do you think that, for example, in this, why in many other uh, bookstores, the self-help section is still thriving? Some have calculated it's a billion-dollar industry because there is a deep longing in many people, if not all people, in trying to discover why they are here. What is their potential? What, am I, what is my calling? But yet, instead of finding it in the Lord Jesus Christ, all these efforts in trying to self-discover without Christ will end up in futility. Howard Hendricks is a professor that I uh, learned a lot. He has passed away, and he says this, nothing is more common than unfulfilled potential. Isn't it a great tragedy that many lives have come and gone without discovering their potential, their purpose and calling? How about you? Will you live this life discovering or not discovering? But let me tell you here that Jesus is offering something, not just an invitation, but a promise that He will help us to find that calling, discover that potential and purpose. Do you know why? Because Jesus is the one who made us. Jesus is the one who called us. That's why He is the only one who can help us to find that calling and purpose. And so a relationship with Jesus is a journey of discovery of who we are, why we are here, and it all circles back to Him. The third one, a command. Verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. A third aspect about having a relationship with Jesus is about how we are ought to obey his commands. Because we must not forget that having a relationship with Jesus is not between two equals, another person with another person. No. It is between God and men. It is between Lord and servant, teacher and disciple. The way to relate to Jesus is by obedience. But yet, it is not blindly obeying 
to a wicked and cruel master, but rather we are asked to obey and trust our future, our very lives, to the one who gave his very own lives to us, that we might be redeemed and saved from a life of eternal condemnation and punishment. Wouldn't you want to obey and trust your life to such a person who loves us in such ways? And so to follow after Jesus means to abandon our ways, our thoughts, our ideas. For when have ever our thoughts and our ideas and our ways led us to a life of fulfillment? Instead, often it has led us to misery, to more problems, self-inflicted problems, to great anxiety, and worse, enslavement to sin. Paradoxically, when we forsake our ways, stop following ourselves, we will experience a life of joy, of freedom, and of power because we are following after the one who can give us those. The last one, Revelation. When Jesus saw Nathanael towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed in him there is no deceit, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. The last aspect of having a relationship with Jesus is the revelation and the discovery of Jesus. Just when you think that you know who Christ is, Christ reveals more about himself. You see, here, John was showing the climax of the chapter itself, that how Jesus is the Son of God, is the King of Israel. And yet, even then, even then, Jesus tells Nathaniel and also to the rest, you will see greater things than these. Just when you thought you know who Christ is, he will show more. There's a Swiss theologian called Heinrich El Elmer Brunner who said this, God cannot be found by thought, but he can only be known through his own manifestation of himself. And in this, he shows himself to be absolute mystery who can only be understood through his own self-revelation. You see, like every other human relationship that you have, the person that you have a relationship with has to be willing to reveal a part of himself or herself to you in growing in this relationship. Now, I didn't have permission from my wife, but you know, I'll use it anyway, but it's okay. It's a safe thing to share. <clears throat> I also share about myself. In the marriage itself, you get to see each other as husband and wife, idiosyncrasies and things, your weird little behavior and world that nobody else see, right? No? Okay. Yes, right. So, I will tell you that I like to eat on the bed. Rah, 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 rah. I eat chips here, sweets here, you know, eat and sleep on the bed. Okay? But when I got married, I cannot eat on the bed anymore. My wife will kill me. And my wife gave this rule, this uh, binding rule. I need to bathe before I go to my bed. Where God need to bathe, go to bed last time when I was a single guy. Huh? Cannot eat, must bathe. Uh, yeah. So, you know, these are different things. She has a different standard. I have a different standard. Hygiene standard, yes. 
This is some of the things that I share with uh, in my marriage counseling that how as husband and wife, we have to learn how to, I don't use the word compromise now, not so good, but I learned from the government, we learn how to accommodate. Find a new normal, and I learned that, yeah, actually it's true. Uh, hygiene is quite important when you sleep on the bed. You shouldn't be sleeping, you crush, hey, there's a chip here. Uh, yeah, it's correct, right? And see, these are little things, you know, little uh, idiosyncrasies and our habits that we normally don't show to people, but we show to one another who are very close that we feel safe with. Now, think a moment. If it requires us in a human relationship to dare to reveal a part of ourselves to the other person that is something special and maybe intimate, something intimate about ourselves, then why would we think that we can know God through our own self-effort? Or just by mere reading, yes, I know God. We can't. But yet it is so simply amazing that God is willing and desires to reveal himself to mere mortal and feeble humans like you and me to show his glory and majesty, to show his goodness to us, to show his love. Not because we deserve it, but because He wants. And let me tell you something that is equally frightening, but also of great relief. You see, God, in His own ways, He has to reveal Himself to us. If not, He's unknowable. But you don't have to know, reveal yourself to God, because God knows you through and through. He knows your strength. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your abilities. He knows your failures. He knows your past. He knows your future. And let me tell you that because of this, entering into a relationship with a God who knows everything about us is so liberating because you don't have to pretend to be someone that you are not, that maybe you have to in order to survive in this world or that you are afraid or embarrassed about your past that you hide. You don't have to. When you are in a relationship with Jesus, you are entering with someone who knows you through and through and still wants to know you and be with you. How do I know that? Because in John's Gospel in chapter 1, he knows Peter. You shall be Peter. He knows Nathaniel. How do you know me? I know you, Nathaniel. I made you. You are coming to someone who is so familiar and knows you through and through, better than yourself. That is why entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ is so welcoming and liberating. It's like coming home. You're coming to someone who knows you through. And so we can see how vastly different it is just to have knowledge of Jesus Christ and remain there is not the same as having a relationship with Him. And having knowledge of Jesus does not equate that I automatically have a relationship with Him. And so we see here from John's Gospel here, John's narrative here, to have relationship with Jesus means to follow Him. So the answer is, what does it mean to follow Christ? So let me bring this to a conclusion. 
To follow Christ is to obey what He has given us. And the only thing that I can refer to is to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, and I'll read to you. This is what Jesus said to His disciples, the Great Commission as commonly known, before He ascended to heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The way to enter and follow Jesus begins with discipleship. You can't go around or do without discipleship. For it is in Jesus' own words that this is the ordained way, the intended way that God has given to us and has left us. There are a number of things for us to note in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. I'll briefly mention four things. One, you cannot follow Jesus on your own. At least in the beginning, you need someone to mentor and disciple you. Entering into a relationship with Jesus involves a human disciple-mentor relationship. Why? Because the second thing is, Jesus uses a human mentor to teach you, to disciple you, to train you, to encourage you, to edify you, equip you, and even to rebuke you in your own ways. That's how Jesus does, through another human relationship. Third, all who say who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and say they follow Him will at one time experience discipleship, either being discipled or maybe one day future disciple others. How do you think an early Christian group just made up of a few ragtag of people in a number of years were able to win over the Roman Empire and influence the entire Western civilization? It was not grand strategy or mass media. It was through the discipleship, the one-to-one ministry itself. And I fear that we as today as a church have forgotten and lost this. Last one. In the discipling process, Jesus is involved entirely because ultimately he is discipling you and me. Because did you read it? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is telling us that when we are in the discipleship process, Jesus is actively involved. That is why I want to challenge you this afternoon. Challenge you on two things. One, are you being discipled by someone or have you ever been discipled by someone? If not, are you seeking? Because let me tell you, Jesus is seeking to disciple you, but he wants to do it through another person. Jesus is looking to invite you to, into the, enter into a relationship of discipleship. The second challenge is, for those of us who might have been discipled, mature in our Christian faith, are we discipling others? As how Jesus has given us this responsibility. For us as parents who have children, are we taking discipleship seriously? Because are we discipling our children? The very first experience of discipleship that our children should have is with you as parents. We may not be the only one, but we are definitely the first ones. And so if we understand this carefully, we would put this 
idea of discipleship very seriously in our relationship with our children. And for those who may not have children, are you praying to God for opportunities to disciple someone, to be used by God, to make a change and an impact in the life of a person? Let me tell you something from my own personal experience. That even as you disciple someone, you are learning things about Lord Jesus Christ that you will never discover. Because Christ is also discipling me through this process. And so I leave you with this challenge, my brothers and sisters. Don't assume that just because you know Christ in knowledge, you have a relationship with Him. Let us pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, and for myself even, that we will take a hard look, an honest look at our own walk with Jesus. Whether is it in existence, whether is it real, or is not. And yet there is time, there is time to turn things around, there is time to repent, there is time to confess. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here, and myself, that if we do not have may we now first utter the words to Christ, Lord, where are you staying? I want to be where you are. And so I pray, Father, may you hear this prayer and work in the hearts of all my brothers and sisters here. And for those of us who have a relationship living one, may we be moved to not neglect, but to continue the work that Jesus has left us with to disciple others and help them in their journey to know and to follow Christ. May we as a church be known as a church to this, the church that continues in faithfulness of this discipleship-making process. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen.